Christian Beer Show. I'm really good at talking whatever. I feel like I feel like Luke is really good at talking about whatever too. Um, he he will he, in, in real life. I think last time I saw you when I was working with you at El Futuro, you like we used to wear similar clothes, which was kind of weird. Super creepy. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. We just had like similar shirts, similar pants, and there was one day where we wore like the exact same outfit. And I think we took a picture of it. Well, this was a, a similar experience for Jose Antonio because we used to wear plaid together quite a bit, from what I remember. I refuse. This was because of a patient <laughs> that wanted to be just like Luke Smith. Well, I think it, it's, it's really something when people in their... I don't know, were y'all in your 20s and I was in my 40s and y'all were trying to pattern your style of dress after me? That's really a compliment. I guess so, yeah. But I had well, not changed my style of dress since my 20s, so it kind of come back around maybe. Maybe that was what was going on. Yeah, but it was a very brief period. I don't, I don't feel like I dressed like that at all. Like, like, I think it was more of a, I just was broke and was buying like cheap clothing. <laughs> I mean, it was the El Futuro attire. Yeah, that, that could have been. It's Wednesdays, I gotta wear plaid. Where's the uniform? Okay, so for everybody listening, this is Jose Antonio Rivas. He's a psychiatrist currently working in Houston, Texas. Baylor, is that right? Yep. And Luke Smith, he's also a psychiatrist working in Durham, North Carolina. He has a private nonprofit. Latino-based psychiatry practice, where both Jose Antonio and I rotated through our residency. That's how we met Luke, who was our supervisor, and he taught us to do uh, Latino psychiatry, which is hilarious because uh, Jose Antonio and I are Latinos, but Luke isn't. But but he's oh, that's debatable. That's debatable. Uh, You haven't shared the delusion there. That's good. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Now my, the first time I became convinced Luke was really onto something or he was someone special was that he managed to convince the whole clinic that he was Mexican. <laughs> like he was a constant. I mean, this we call this shared delusional disorder. But he had convinced all the clinic, many of the Mexicans, that he was Mexican indeed. And there was just no arguing about that. So how do you do that? I think it's um, interesting because now I see a conversation in the news about who is the real Latino. Have y'all seen this conversation that's kind of come up in the news since the election and everybody's like, whoa, Tejanos or Latinx or Latino or who is it? And I have no idea. I don't watch the news that often. Oh, that's smart. But yeah, that's the that's the conversation because Trump won a segment, a, a larger segment of the Latino vote than he did in 2016. So people are starting to ask, well, who are these people who are voting for Trump? And it turns out they're not a homogenous group after all. So well, I've, I've seen got, the names of Latinos for Trump. They're hilarious. Are they in Are they in Houston? I imagine there may be a few. 
No, I think it's mostly Florida. I don't know exactly, but the memes of Latinos for Trump are really good. <laughs> well, I did see some of that data, and I think that most Latinos that voted for Trump did so in Florida, and the specific demographic was Cuban Latinos. And I think that what happened there is that Cuban Latinos, a lot of them have this history of escaping communism. And some of them swam their way out of the island. And, and there was a sort of propaganda uh, against Biden showing him to be a sort of communist. And, and I think like just that activated a lot of the fear in the Latino community. Also, there's a lot of Venezuelan Latinos that escaped, that escaped Maduro that were also in Florida maybe in other areas, not only in Florida. And, and if you are deeply scared of communism and, and it's hard to, to see like factually how, how the Democrats were aiming towards this election, I mean, it could be easy to say, I don't, wanna, I don't want communist Biden in this situation. Well, and I would say that they are in Texas, down, down at the border in the, in the valley, as they call it. Um, that there's a pretty strong pro-Trump representation. But I'll give you my example from recently. I went to a quinceanera with my 14-year-old daughter. One of her friends was having her quince. I was going to say you're a little old for that now. <laughs> well, you know, it's never too late. So there I was at the quinceanera. I will say that when we went, we had our masks on. Um, we went into the quince and... There are probably 150 people there. None of them had on masks. We were the only two people who looked non-Latino and it was quite a moment to walk in and be the only two with masks on and look at all these people looking at you going, why are you wearing masks? But I sat down next to a lady and I, it was right around the time of the election. I can't remember if it was right before, I think it was right after and the results were coming in and I was saying something kind of to get some solidarity. I was grasping here. I was really needing to make a friend. And I said something about Trump, thinking that will be my moment to kind of build some, you know, commonality. And she came back at me and was uh, kind of insulted that I had insulted Trump. Why? Because Trump is pro-life. So that was her issue. And she, right there, let me know that, nope, don't, don't play that with me. And I was like, oh, there's another example of it not being a homogenous group. <laughs> hmm. I was talking with someone whose own son is eligible for DACA. Like the kid is like 17 and hasn't been able to apply because of all that being on hold. Being uh, oh, did everyone freeze? No, I, I don't think it's frozen. All right. Uh, but still, this mom was much more for Trump. Or it's like, well, I heard he's good for the economy. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, this idea of the everything bathed in gold, it, there's just no more education for beyond that. Think like Alvarito back there in Ecuador. <laughs> yeah, we had this guy, Alvarito, that, like, I, I guess he's a millionaire. and But he's like the most, he looks like a, like a like a human penguin and 
and and he's like really he's not eloquent at all and and he really doesn't know how to talk and he almost looks like he has problems communicating in general and and he's been trying to be president for like a, a decade and a half now i think i think he's trying again he's trying in a while well there's well, a video of him trying to teach people how to not get covid and and and, and I mean, just for a premise he's not a doctor i don't think he he knows much about medicine either but he was next to a river saying that everybody should buy azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine and and have a couple of pills a day and i don't know man i don't know these these are ecuadorian politicians yeah the irons are pretty rich out there with politics and how people vote and the beliefs i'm thinking about i'm from arkansas originally and the irony to me is when I go to a, a, a Mexican wedding or a quinceanera or whatever, uh, the majority of the crowd typically in, in these settings are people who look like they're right off the farm in Arkansas. They have mm -hmm. cowboy hats and they have boots and um, they're very worried about their youngsters going off to the academy and getting educated and coming back and not speaking the language of the people anymore or relating to them. And um, the irony for me is that oftentimes it's the rural people here in the US who are feeling threatened by the Latino immigrants, but there's uh, so many commonalities with the Latino immigrants who are coming in. And um, sometimes I've recently reflected with some people I know from Mexico who are from the farm areas and I say, you know, if there was a Honduran who came into your small town in Mexico, how would you treat them? And they quite frankly say, well, we probably wouldn't like them much. You know, we probably wouldn't want to have them around. So it's just an interesting thing where you see what we often know in psychiatry is that repetition kind of cycle that happens human behavior. I, I think there's something more unique in just, uh, I mean, wasn't just recently talking about the topics about racism and all that, you know, with my South American friends, people who talk about the racism pretty loudly and not really very ashamed, sadly. I'm ashamed to say it's just, oh yeah, like it's, that's how it is. That's how it's always been kind of thing. Uh, while in conversations about race here, it's so, it's just a very loaded topic of, wait, no, we don't want to talk about that part. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I, I have several friends uh, in, in, and, and several people that I know that are, that are from Ecuador, and they, they're, some of them are unknowingly very racist, but they think they're not racist. Some of them are very knowingly racist, and some of them are not racist at all. But everybody talks about it, and but th there's this privilege thing going on too, right? Like we're talking about higher socioeconomic status, kind of people just talking about it without like other races around them, maybe, which is kind of interesting and, and thoughtless. But but yeah, I agree. Yeah, we, we think that like we're in the U.S. and we think that there that 
that racism only exists in, in white Americans, and that's not really the case. It's pervasive, regardless of, re of your race, regardless of where you come from, regardless from your socioeconomic status, even. But on that note, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And what I wanted to talk about too is, you know, like I wanted to hear your story, Luke. Like, what led you, amongst all the things that you could do or you could have done with your life, to start this? Free, this is a beautiful clinic for everybody listening. This is a free clinic for. Any, for the Latino population. So if you're a, a Latino individual that has no money or very little money and doesn't know how to speak English and you're in need of mental health, you go to El Futuro. And then Luke will be there. And maybe a few years ago, I would have been there. And even few, more years ago, Jose would have been there. And we would have talked with you and helped you out in whatever way we could. And... And it tends to be quite a beautiful experience and, and, and you guys have an amazing community over there. So I was wondering, like, what led you to make this choice? Well, and that's, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm on with the two of you, thinking of it as a free clinic. It's free to everybody except for the residents who work there because you- Yeah, I'm like, I'm still paying for that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I come after you guys for donations now. And then when you were there, you know, you were working like slaves. So um, I'm, I'm surprised you're still talking to me. But it's a great experience for me uh, long term. Uh, I don't feel like it's any, any burden whatsoever. But I, I really enjoy it. It came about when I was in residency. Um, I was here in North Carolina and in the hospitals and all around because I spoke a little bit of Spanish and both of you know that that is a very generous estimation of the Spanish that I speak. And I spoke a little bit of Spanish then, I probably still speak a little bit now, especially compared to YouTube. But um, it was great because I started getting referrals and I got to experience a different culture without having to get on a plane and go into another culture. I was already from the South, like from uh, Arkansas. So I came up to North Carolina. Uh, that was already an experience because when I came up here, my parents, who Jose knows quite well, um, they, they were stunned. They were like, why are you going to the North? Uh, and I said, well, I, North Carolina is not really the North, but uh, why don't you go to South Carolina? What's North Carolina about? But I came up here and I, I found it to be just really encouraging to, to find other people and other cultures. And I was learning so much about myself and in residency as a psychiatrist. And it just scratched an itch in terms of a type of psychiatry that wasn't just the, the usual or the normal for me. I saw it as crossing a border uh, without having to actually cross a geographical border. And it was also a really big need. I looked around and nobody was doing this. I thought, well, I may not be able to do it perfect, but I can at least try. And I found others who are willing to follow. And I think that's, that's probably the best answer is that I, I found always a community in doing this work. And both of you were part of that. I'm encouraged by that still, by this conversation today, and then um, the residents and the different students who come through, but just also the workers. Now we have almost 50 people on staff, and we're providing a lot of services, and it's really a beautiful place to work. I'm just honored, privileged, and I think it's a learning experience. I learn more every day, and that's a, that's a fun place to be in life, is just to keep learning. 
Mm -hmm. And I would echo that when you crossed into El Futuro as a resident, I remember it just felt like we were going to this different place. Almost like I'm, you know, teleporting. Once you cross that door, it's just this different environment that felt much more like home, or it's, it just felt different uh, being in the work environment of residency, hospital, clinic, and then, oh, I'm just at El Futuro like this. It didn't feel like work. That's true. I definitely, I mean, I, I, at times I did feel like it felt like work, but it was a different kind of work in the sense that I, I felt that it was particularly meaningful because I, a part of me, when I came to the US, I did feel like, well, I'm not helping like my people, you know? And, and being able to do that was, I, I felt really nice. And, and being able to talk about it, we look, I guess that you're just laid back. At Duke, everything's very, very professional. And you're, look, you're just not professional. I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm not though I don't wear tie-dye shirts. I see that you have a tie-dyed shirt on. Yeah, that's true. One, one of many. I think that I'm kind of into it now. I haven't brought them to the hospital. I, I don't think that they would let me do that. But I definitely wear them in the podcasts. And I don't know. I really like I really like your style of teaching. It was very deep and personal and spiritual and, and laid back. I really felt like, oh, this is how psychiatry could be outside of a very like extremely, um, I don't know, like I, I'm not trying to think that Duke was a bad thing. It was a great thing. I learned a lot and I learned about processes and how to do like optimize every aspect of my time. And, and how to be perfectly um, therapeutic. And I think that what you do is, is you, you put a, a touch of your person into it. And, and that I liked, that I liked, I feel like. It, it, it freed me to be myself doing the therapy. I was also young. Uh, and, and I didn't know, like, I just wanted to do all the techniques perfectly and, and be as impersonal as I, could, as I could because I didn't want to, like, um, mod the picture. And with you, I learned to be myself as a tool of therapy. I think that's something I learned from you. That, that's interesting. I'm thinking about that, Christian, that here we are talking, and both of you, I feel like, I know on a friend level, instead of what I always saw in organized medicine was this hierarchy that would develop and you would have an attending and it was a revered person who you would go bow before and try to get all the right answers. And um, I think that's so unhelpful. And Eating does the best. <laughs> why do you think I'm a tailor now? Exactly. That's why. You need to come back to El Futuro. We got to bring you back home. We got to get you back. No, I'm the attending now. I get all the reference and all the perks. <laughs> we can still salvage this. But, but I saw it, and I, and I think that that's also analogous to your therapeutic relationship with people. When you enter into a relationship, it's all about relationship. And the more barriers you put up that are pretentious and you know, not being able to joke about yourself sometimes or just taking yourself too, pers or too seriously, I think really gets in the way. Because um, you can use great techniques, great medicines, and totally miss the boat with people and treat them less than 
and they walk out and they don't follow recommendations or you haven't really heard them. And so I, I love entering into a creative moment with people who are around me, whether it be a patient or a resident and seeing it as a journey that we're going on together. And, and it blesses me. I'm thinking about when I see Jose Antonio, I can't help but think of the group that he started uh, eight years ago with us that lives on. And now we have several sections of this group um, and he did it just out of creativity. And we were able to say, hey, try it out. There it is. He's got the manual. I love it. This was my mentoring that I got when I told him, look, I want to do group therapy. He's like, all right, here's a manual. Just read it and do it. <laughs> They'll forgive you. Don't worry. Just read the manual and try it. <laughs> exactly. And that's, I think that's another thing is that people are so forgiving if you really are human with them, whether it be Spanish or a bad accent. I mean, I've never seen so many Ecuadorian accents that a good Mexican can't understand, but it, it happens tragically in our clinic with Jose Antonio and, and Cristian. <laughs> and but, Cecilia, which she's not here with us, but I just texted her, so maybe she'll be able to join us too. So Cecilia is the third Ecuadorian that worked also in that clinic, and she stayed, and she works with you now. That's right. She does a great job. And, that's, and that, I saw that in her personality immediately. The first time I worked with her, she, in, in Spanish, you can use the formal usted with people, and she didn't use that. She called people by their first name. She used the informal, and she just, like, connected with people immediately. And I loved that. I was like, you got to work here. I, I need you to work here. And she's done a great job, even though she has an Ecuadorian accent. And you still, are you getting fundraising through her too? Do you hold some of her paycheck for the? Oh yeah, that's earmarked. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but yes, yeah, something, I think I also really enjoyed just the part about gratitude. Uh, and I hadn't experienced that as much. You know, practicing in the U.S., you will obviously get some patients that will be thank you, doc, like you did an amazing job, or you know, thank you for you know helping me with this and whatnot. Uh, but there's a fair amount of you know, I have my insurance, you need to do this for me, or uh, you know, very little thank you kind of thing, and a lot of complaints about you know, I I wait, my appointment was at this time, while we ten minutes late or fifteen minutes late, or there's just all this added stuff that didn't exist in clinic uh, in El Futuro, where we would just have, you know, the patients were just so happy that we were there for them. And, you know, even if we were running late, somehow they knew it's because someone needs the time more than they do. So, or, you know, they would see Dr. Smith just running around all over the place. And they're like, oh, he's busy. And he did have that culture that, uh, you don't see us often. Every patient knows if they walk in, they will be seen. Yeah. God knows when, but you know, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny that you bring that up because I'm a little bit neurotic, and and I feel like I, I, I like time like needs to be fully uh, taken advantage of, and and I think Luke helped me loosen up a little bit. Because even if there was a, a patient that needed to be there at 8 a.m. and then they would arrive at 3 p.m. because like 
I'm a little bit late, which happens a lot. Hey, we're from South America, like two thirds of us here. This is how we work. We'll be there at 1 p.m. Well, probably three, I'll be leaving my house. So, so Luke is South American in that way. He just like gets it. And he was very happy to see you, even if it just messed with your schedule completely. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I think it's especially true now with COVID and doing video appointments because people have such difficulty sometimes or just re remembering they may be out at the laundromat or going to pick up somebody and oh that an appointment got away and so you have to flip it and all of a sudden you're doing it two hours later and there's a lot of tetris that happens be very flexible with people say okay well i'll do it later and then you call up somebody else and um i don't know if that's your danish roots that may be or germanic I'm, i remember you have those roots maybe that's part of it there's a timeliness there yeah, I think that's what it is. It's partly the Danish genes, but it's also partly I went to a German high school and and everything was on time or not at all. And so yeah, it, I just got like I just it's just part of me now. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because I get stuff done in in a, a, in terms of the quantity that that things that I do get done over a particular day, I get more done. Fully respect my time, but being adaptable. And it makes you think that you're better than everyone else. I feel so much better. I feel so much better. Like, I have no idea how much I got done. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's a problem too because then I start thinking about all the things that I'm not going to be able to do if I like go out and like buy a cup of coffee because then I'm losing five minutes, and then that's not healthy, right? So. So then I, I, I have learned to relax a little bit. And I think that now I'm 50-50 like there. I'm 50-50, I'm more relaxed than I used to be. I think COVID helped because I don't have as much stuff to do as I did before too. Well, I'll say another thing both of you taught me that I think is really helpful. So I may be able to say, oh yeah, I like to engage culture and as you're talking about timeliness and some of those things, um, I do think they're important, but uh, starting with Jose, I can remember you coming in just frazzled from university life medicine and putting your head down on the table and saying, I need my own mente sana, I need my own mindfulness. That was the name of the group actually. And you would say, I just need five, 10 minutes just to collect myself. And then in the, in the class you would teach, here came these um, ladies, I think they were all female who came in, and you participated with them. Like your, your participation was not above them or instructional. It was um, very much in the moment with them. And um, I, I remember, and I point that out because I also remember Christian one time you coming in and you were so affected by a lady who had come into the clinic. And you came in and you were emotionally just, uh, I don't know how to describe it. You were drained, you were fragile, um, and you had been one with her in that moment in a way that had lent of yourself. You had that courage to go in there and say, I'm going to be with her. I'm not going to be over her or um, prescribing a medicine to her or whatever it might be, but you had, you had actually joined with her in that moment. And 
I think both of y'all did that in a way that freshened my vision for what healing was about. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. I, I remember that patient and like, that was a tough situation. I think that it was tough because I could see the suffering that she was going through and it wasn't her fault. She was just born in the wrong place. And, and yeah, I, I still, like, I, I still get emotional about it, like, like remembering that specific case and, and, and I was really grateful. Like, I, to, I think that part of the reason I was able to just be there with her was because I knew that after that, I could just like go to your supervisor room and just start crying as I did because it was tough, right? Like it was immigrants sometimes go through such tough life. They, they end up here and, and we, and here in the US, like there's a lot of thinking on, oh, why like, should we allow them? Should we not allow them? And like hearing these kinds of cases makes me understand, like it's not common. Like why would anybody want to leave their home country with all their loved ones, with all their everything that they know. Like it, it's a little bit different with Jose and me, like we want a better education. And, and but, but if you don't have, you don't even know the language and you need to leave, it's because you're escaping something really bad and really awful. Yeah. Well, for me, it was more about being gay and just knowing that in Ecuador, that wasn't quite gonna fly for a generation. It's much better now. But, you know, then, of course, if you want to get hired, you want to stay for the higher education. <laughs> but it's leaving your country is just not an easy thing. And it's not something that people do usually when they have better choices or better options. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, reflecting with them and just having that time with Mentesan, it was just me being selfish in many ways. I was just, I can't be there for you if I'm not. I need a few minutes to myself. Uh, and that's a concept, at least with the group that was mostly Latino mothers, this idea of, wait, I need a minute to myself is just not culturally, it's not, wait, no, you have to take care of your children, you have to take care of your husband, you have to take care of the house, you have to take care of, take care of, take care of, take care of. Take care of. Uh, and I think so much of it is just modeling, you know, I'm going to do what I need now and the group can, you know, just tag along. And... That, that's, you know, that's something that I, I agree with and, I, and, I, and it's something that I've been slowly recently learning, the modeling of authenticity and being yourself and vulnerable and, and helpful because that is a way of helping others help themselves. Yeah, I think that that's something that I, I, I've continued to learn here at Memorial, where we have a lot of people that are dying from cancer and and, and, and it just feels like, like all the relationships with patient doctor relationship just feel more intense and personal 
where the modeling of, of, of my own personality without as many filters and well, but having some filters, like the aim of it being, being therapeutic is so helpful. And I think this is what a reason for the podcast too. I like, it's called thrive, right? And, and I've talked about it in other episodes, but it's meant to, I try to invite people that I think that are enjoying their lives and, and, and generally speaking, happy with the human existence and, and being themselves in a conversation is a way of modeling your behavior as well. And I like that as another tool for healing or knowing yourself or, or, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Well, I think it's part of it. Go ahead, Dr. Smith. Oh, no, no. I'm, now I'm going to hear the other part. You said if that is part of it. I mean, there's so much your life can get better if you're only focused on yourself. Like, I do think there's a ceiling effect. Because, you know, as much as there is, you know, I got to improve myself. I got to get the best education, the best thing, and get the best job and do the whole thing myself. Da, da, da. Uh, at some, you know, it's like that reaches a ceiling. And then if you don't move beyond yourself, it's like, wait, I can just think of the effect size that's just increasing. I can make life better for all these other people. Like it's, it's just economics to me. That's. What's your return on investment? You're, if you're just investing in yourself, your return on investment is pretty And strong. I'm investing in the Futuro because I keep getting those emails. <laughs> I'm guilt trippy letters. Like. That's right. That's right. You can leverage your donation at this moment. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I'm having that conversation with my teenage daughters frequently about, you know, what are you shooting for kind of? And I find myself almost wanting to temper their their aims, saying, "Don't don't shoot for that. That's that's actually um, that's great and all, but what at the end of the day is it going to mean when COVID hits and nobody else is around and you just have yourself because you've achieved and you're isolated and um, where are you then?" and I, I just, I think that's been one of the silver linings of COVID has been a time where we've been able to step back and kind of be existential with our thoughts and think, you know, what is our work for? And, and then I think having another aspect is the people you work with. Uh, I just had somebody, this was so amazing, uh, a lady, she's from uh, Salva, Salvatierra. Guanajuato, Mexico. She works with us. She's a project manager and she was she was um, interviewing for a job with us and I was actually doing the interview because it was an open hiring process, but she was an internal candidate. And in the middle of the interview, she said to me, um, you know, I don't want this job to be too much because I talked with your daughter the other day in the kitchen. My kids are up at work right now because they're doing schooling because we don't have very good internet at home. So there they are. And and she talked to my daughter and my daughter said, I'm just not seeing my dad much these days. And Maddie said to me, I don't want this job to take over and be like what it's done to you lately. And I went, oh, 
<laughs> you just failed your interview. That was not a good move right there. But of course we gave her the position. I want that kind of person on my staff. I want somebody who can speak truth to power and, you know, not not totally form a mutiny and and totally tear things apart, but she does it in a gentle, loving, gracious way. Um, somebody who can come to me and say, look, you're a little off off your game right now. You're not in balance. You're not in the harmony you want to be in. And um, I know you better than that. And I'm going to remind you of that. I love having people around me like that who can kind of help get me back on track. I don't know if they're going to get me totally back on track because I'm kind of a <laughs> hopeless case. Containment. Yeah, yeah. Containment. Like psychiatric that's right. That's right. Yes. So it's it's good. And I, I think, too, having people around me, I'm, I frequently think about um, structure that I need to be in the right rhythm in tune with who I need to be. And um, another feature of people around me is people who are organized and who can help drive things forward when I'm spinning off with another wild idea. Um, and I really have to build my world. I'm, I married somebody like that. I, I surround myself with people who can kind of um, help me be the true loop and not feel bad about that or feel like I need to do something that I'm not. Um, but I love that the example of her coming to me the other day was really nice. And um, I, I mean, I, one other example I'll give is a Puerto Rican lady and her mom has bipolar disorder with psychosis. It's pretty significant. She's now um, almost 70 years old. She's been on long-term lithium and antipsychotics and has been through a couple episodes even lately. And one day her daughter looked at me and she said to me, she said, um, I'm glad we're here for you so we can help you know these medicines better and we can help you learn to be a better doctor. And I didn't take it as an affront at all. I could see some people being like kind of offended by that. I even bring my residents in so that they can see this patient family because they're so real and so frank with me and um, they do give guidance in a nice way. Um, but I love that kind of reciprocity and that kind of ability to receive, not just give. Um, I just don't know if I'm always open to it. I'm a pretty stubborn guy sometimes. So I just hope I have the eyes to see it. And they're right. I mean, they are helping you to understand these medications better and to, and to do therapy better, right? Like all patients are. You become a little bit better by, by them giving you the opportunity to help yeah. Yeah, that same that same family. I there's several families who call me by my first name, and I'm like, don't don't they know I'm a doctor? And they they call me um, Luke is my name, and and in Spanish it sounds like Duke. And so I I've like reacted several times to these families who call me Luke like that, and I. At one point, and I asked this lady, actually, I was like, you know, I'm just wondering, what, what are you actually calling me there? And it turns out she was calling me Doc, but I thought it was Luke, Duke. And so I had totally missed, of course, heard the Spanish, which I know for neither of you is a surprise. Um, but she said it was an endearing term for doctors that they would call their doctor a Doc instead of doctor or doctor. Um, 
but there I was, and this went on for probably 10 years. I've had people call me Luke, I thought, my first name. And I finally had the, the candid relationship with this family who had instructed me on the better ways of using medicine. But then they also told me that I had misunderstood their Spanish. So it's actually quite comical sometimes, some of this frankness and reciprocity. But I enjoy it. It's so much fun. It's, again, not taking yourself too seriously. And I think that's what makes it work. Like the patients will forgive you anything because they know you mean, you know, you're there for them. So I think we get so worried sometimes about not saying the wrong thing or not saying something that could be interpreted the wrong way or that could be controversial or provocative or something. And it's, uh, you know, the only way to not step on anyone is being really far away from everyone. And that's the price that you pay. Well, if you're actually willing to, hey, I misunderstood you, I'm, or, you know, oops, sorry, I didn't realize you were there. This was a touchy thing. Let's talk about it. Let's, uh, it just works better. So, yeah, with look, it's very easy. With the doc here, <laughs> it makes it very easy to just move past any comments or anything. Because uh, you can see where the heart is. Yeah, and you, and you have a, a bunch of toys in your office. I forgot about that. A ton of toys. So people yeah, can playing there. Yep. It's, it's a fun interactive environment. A neurologist one time had a bunch of wind-up toys. It was, a, it was a pediatric neurologist. And this is where I got this from, was he went in with the, the kid, and he had all these little wind-up toys he'd put on the desk, and the kid would just immediately start playing with these toys and forget the reason why they had come to the appointment. And so these toys actually are brilliant because they, they really do help uh, distract people from the anxiety they feel when they come in and the nervousness or the worry about their problem. And I see adults pick up the toys just as much as the kids. That's the ironic thing. Um, so it's a really nice little way to interact and some people call them fidget toys but these are off these are more than just fidget toys these are these are some serious toys i usually get more excited about a toy store than my kids do there we go i'll i'll tell you something that we've started doing uh, or that we've actually invested in at el futuro and i'll i'd like to hear some of your thoughts about this so we've We've, we purposely bought a building next to a green space. And I don't know if either one, I know Christian Cena. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. Um, and it was full of beer bottles and uh, hypodermic needle, needles and trash and just that. And we've gradually, it's been a wonderful fundraising opportunity, actually, for either one of you if you're interested. But um, there's been some amazing donations coming from foundations that would never have given us money, who want to invest in green space and gardens and parks. So we we built a, a community garden. Uh, we painted a mural. It's the largest mural in our city. In a, um, wow. It's a 160 feet long and about 30 feet tall, uh, painted by a, a man from Michoacan, Mexico. He's an amazing artist, um, and it was a community effort where all these community members came together and we got designs. It was very therapeutic. So there you have a, a therapeutic garden, a, then a mural, and then we asked people, we said, we want to have a place to play for the kids. And we asked people, we said, well, where, 
where where do you remember growing up? Because we wanted to have a have a visceral kind of connection when they came. They said, well, we played in fields, we climbed trees, and we swam in streams. It was a lot of what we heard. There was a little bit of variation, but that was a very common theme. So we said, well, that's it. We're, we got some trees. We already have a little place where kids play soccer, but let's let's build a stream. So we've now built a stream that's a little over 100 feet long. It's got these big boulders, waterfalls, um, and it's electric. The kids are coming out of the neighborhood. The families come with them. Um, now we're seeing that the this is a, a neighborhood that's starting to gentrify, and we're seeing people from all different walks and backgrounds, immigrants, non-immigrants, Latino, black, white, whatever, they're coming together because their kids like to play in this little stream. And it's beautiful. It's so, like for me, and this is where I appreciate your perspective, is like a lot of mental health is about relationship and about disordered relationship and broken relationships from immigration or from whatever. And here's a place that I feel like is starting to put the focus back on something that we've missed as we've kind of had our own um, professional migration away from what we knew worked back in the day with just basic therapy and relationships. And um, here we are. I, I frequently now, because of COVID, I can't see people on the office. I go out to the stream and I see people at the stream and play with the kids in the stream. And I feel like it's, it's pretty awesome, but I don't know if it's going to hit the efficiency mark for you, Christian. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But I, I was thinking, like, when I was in Ecuador, I used to go to these retreats where we would um, just go to the wilderness and, and explore. And we would find a stream every once in a while, and we would get in and just, like, hang out there. And now I kind of want to do that at El Futuro. But... Yeah, not very efficient. Not very efficient. Yeah. But but then okay, but does it matter? Well, okay. Let, what's the point of efficiency if we're thinking about a private practice that you're building? I think that your private practice is generally uh, based on philanthropy, right? Like you, you you've already asked us for money. I, th I think three times in the last forty nine minutes. So so it it, it is a philanthropy based. Thing. So in that case, it does give you the freedom to not care too much about time, right? Because isn't that right? I mean, I could be completely wrong. Yeah, you would, you would hope so, but you definitely find yourself writing grants and promising so many people seen, and then you start to get on that treadmill and um, people become widgets instead of people. So even, even there, um, but yeah, I think it, it tends to allow me and others there and that's what's the the freedom that we have of creativity and, and thinking about a stream as healing and getting people excited about ideas and um and then keeping people excited we've got now we we partner with people around research and that's a process that just is fraught with difficulty trampling on people's um sense of agency and self and exploiting people and manipulating people and just kind of the research takes on a life of its own oftentimes. And so we've really pushed back against that. And one of the ways we've done this, we have a, we have a committee and everything that comes to us as a research project has to go through this committee. And it's made up of our patients and us and some community members. 
And, um, and that's how we're forming our projects now too. Like all of our projects, we have a, I'm doing an ADHD project. It's a 15 month project on basically figuring out how to get me some treat. I mean, uh, how do we help people with ADHD who may be immigrants, maybe low income, may just fall through the cracks repeatedly in these school systems, which are so built on really systemic problems of systemic racism and um, just classism. And uh, people who have resources can get help for their kids with ADHD. But the rest of the kids start to flounder when they hit middle school and high school, and it just it's tragic. So our, our project is made up of about 12 people. Six of them are parents who are right there helping us design the project and make it happen. And it's just a different way of, it's, it's again, not a top-down kind of endeavor. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I think that we're, we're coming into a new stride right now at El Futuro with that kind of thinking. That sounds pretty so, cool to me. Because then you don't have the, the, the type of researcher that just wants to like explore this specific area that may be theoretically useful, but will it be clinically useful? Will it be clinically useful in this specific setting to this specific population? Maybe, maybe not. But if you have a committee where the clinicians and the patients are there, yeah. that sounds yeah. pretty cool to me. To push back. When I'm, and you know, in all of these things, we're talking about patient voice coming in and really kind of trusting the intuition of people who are, they have a nascent wisdom that's within and it's looking to them to say, teach us and help us understand how to, how to navigate these troubled waters. Um, but I think I'm, I'm interested because you both come from Ecuador, you come to the U S you, you, you know, you bow to the Mecca of high education. And then at some point, do you have a moment where you go, this is not resonating with me. This is not what I want to do. <laughs> well, I can tell, I don't know, like I, I, I do, I loved it there. I feel like I, 99% of the time I was, I, I felt like I was being taught, including you. I mean, you were, you are part of that, right? Like you are part of that educational experience. You're not a rebel that says that I'm not going to do it. Maybe you're kind of a rebel in the sense that you say, hey, you can do it this way too. But you're still embedded in the system. And yep. including you, I, I generally felt I'm learning from the best. And I want to be the best possible psychiatrist. So I do want to go into this situation. Yes, there are aspects in which, I, like after I grew a little, there were aspects that maybe I would do different in terms of like how I would practice it. And then I came to Memorial where people, where people vibe, like the vibe there is, it's kind of like your vibe. It's kind of like yours, it's like very personable, very informal. And, and I think it's all related to being so close to death and so close to knowing that maybe I'm gonna die very soon. Maybe my patients are gonna die very soon. So I'm not gonna fake anything. I'm gonna be myself and I'm gonna help you be yourself. And, and it, but it also comes, I think, from uh, related to what Jose was saying a little bit ago, there, there is, in, 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 at least in my personality, I do feel like I needed to go as academic as possible to feel like I learned 
from the best and, and consider myself among the best. And then the natural selfish tendency is to help others to feel better myself. So like, I, I think like, like it went there, like now it's, now my drive does go towards others more than myself, but I think it's also selfish drive because it makes me feel nice. I think that there is a selfishness in there, right? I would also think of it as different types of knowledge. Uh, so I know the academic knowledge that I got from Duke was unparalleled, and I'm just so grateful for that. But it's not, you know, it just doesn't end there. I don't say, okay, I graduated, now I know everything there is to know about this. And, uh, no, it's, you just keep learning stuff. What's been the most, most Im impressive knowledge that you've had or category of knowledge that you've had since graduating from residency, being in the real world? Uh, the biggest kind of thing that's kind of shaking my world a little bit is actually uh, just around the way women are women in medicine. But it's funny because I just walking into now that i have students when i have two female students the service is just completely different they're just so much better in every way wow. and they're held to such a higher standard and just i've become much more aware of what it's like to be a professional woman or what it's uh you know even going to see a patient the patient's wife will be like Oh, honey, here's the doctor and the, you know, and the two nice little girls. And then I walk out and be like, the two nice little girls are the Baylor medical students. Like the, I don't know, it's, and it's nothing new. It's nothing that wasn't there before. Uh, but I think that's what's really grabbed a lot of my attention. Uh, in all the things, just on the privilege of my maleness or, all the things that I take for granted. I mean, how much stuff gets for people forgive us. It's, they forgive us a lot. So what about you? What's the doctor's mind, and Christian's mind? Um, it was my question. You can't throw that back on me. I was asking you. I learned from the best. <laughs> You know, it's it, like, it, it's so true what you're saying, Jose, like, I, I, and, and this is probably because uh, women in medicine in general, of course, is not in all, it's not all the time, but in general, yeah, like, it, they're undermined, so they have maybe this internal feeling that they need to do better, and, they, and then probably, like, almost society and the system forces them to work harder, do better to be like considered the same standard, which is kind of sad, right? And, and, and at the same time, like the flip side of it is like kind of cool to see the potential of humanity, right? Like in terms of like how good can you be? And, and isn't that similar for immigrants though? I feel like it's the same. Like if you want to go, if, if I wanted to come to the US, I needed to have better grades than the average person applying to the same places that I did. I needed to have better work ethic. I needed to to have, um, I don't know, better interpersonal community. Like I needed to do better and be better in order to be considered even. 
Um, so, so, like, I guess I understand the feeling, but I, I, I think I see it. I think that in terms of what I have learned the most from after graduation, is it's been a little bit about potential. Like, I have, I have met some, and they're not doctors. I, I I've met some friends that are just entrepreneurs, and or they do other things, and and I and look, I guess you you qualify there, right? In in the sense that you have an idea and you want to make it reality and you make it you make it happen you just work very hard you figure it out and you make it happen i think that when you're stuck in academic medicine that's not always the case you're like a little piece in the cog of the system and and there's so many opportunities so much potential for things to be done and i've met several people that just have made it happen that it that it has stuck in me a little bit and now i have this internal belief system that whatever it is that i can do there's no reason not to do it right like okay like a vivid example of this is you right now look you're you're having a clinic that has its own river apparently uh, a, a soccer field rio Chuelo. it's a rio Chuelo. Right, you have your own Riachuelo, your own soccer field, a huge mural, biggest in the city, and it's free for everybody that goes there. What? How do you make that happen? I mean, yeah, you just ask for a ton of people, a ton of money. You just, like, do it. So, you know, you're talking about something. Um, I, had a, I had a moment where I kind of crashed and burned what was it the day before yesterday we were, we were catching up with family i don't know if, how many of you have been on this zoom call thing where you start you know there's a it's not a seven minute pause i don't know when the pause comes on zoom but you you get everybody organizing your family to do a zoom call and then you sit there and look at each other and you're like uh okay what do we talk about next i think it's got to be before seven minutes because it really you run out of space really quick and um whatever the case i was i was there and we were answering a question about like what have you been up to lately what are your hobbies and jose's got a, a new dog on the screen right now and i love it oh what's your puppy's name avery he's a lion not a puppy oh he's a lion of course he's so sweet and it's, and, and, look well, at his face so i'll i'll i was saying about the i want to come back to that but the Oh, look at the tail. He is a lion. Check it out. Is that groomed or is that natural? No, he's kind of wet right now. Oh, okay. It's raining. Uh, what a sweetie. And I saw he was judging things earlier for another conversation. But what I was saying about this, um, this moment was I was asked, you know, well, what have you been up to lately? And I've been working a lot lately. But it's been very gratifying. And one of the things that's gratifying about this, this work that I do, beside, I've got kind of compartment, compartments of work. One is the patient care. It's just fascinating, wonderful. I love doing it. Um, there's a lot there. But another part is the Rio Chuelo. It's a project. And seeing a project come to fruition. And there's a, um, a writer, I can't remember his name now, Daniel Pink, maybe, he wrote a book called Drive, and he said that if you want 
internal motivation versus external motivation. The external motivation really isn't where it's at. Carrot and stick doesn't work. But internal motivation is that thing that happens inside of you when you stay up late working on a project that's probably not work related and it causes you to burn the midnight oil and you just can't stop until you finish it. You can't stop until you've done the next podcast, Christian, or whatever it might be. You know, you're like into it. And he said that there's certain conditions that have to be met um, for that to work. But if you can recreate that in a work situation or in your own career, then you you'll be internally motivated and gratified by that work. And I, and what he says is that you have to be passionate about it. You have to have the right skills or you have to find the right skills to, to be able to do whatever you're working on. And then you also have to have autonomy. You can't be told what to do. It's not formulaic. It's something where you have creative energy and you get to make it up and, you know, figure it out. And if those, those conditions are satisfied, then you'll have internal drive to get things done. And that's, a, that's what a project is to me a lot of times. It's like, I think my hobby sometimes is just projects. Like it can be any number of things, but it's like just doing something is fun when you can master some new skills, you can be excited about something and then you get to have some creative energy around that. That, that motivates me much more than a salary does or whatever. It's like, hey, I enjoy the heck out of that. And it's a lot of fun. So I think that's probably some entrepreneurial spirit that I can relate to. Um, and then it's cyclical. It's not, it's seasonal and it, it kind of, that'll burn out and then I'll go on to the next project. And that's also fun because it's unique and the next horizon, right? You know, it's so true. Like, I think I've come to that realization not too long ago. I real, I feel like Throughout my life, I've been wanting to go to the next goal, right? Like I was in high school, then I wanted to go to med school, then I wanted to go to a good, I wanted to go to a good residency, then I wanted to be done with residency, then I wanted to do fellowship, then I wanted to like, and so on and so forth. And I was just like, like delayed gratification until the next goal, which is kind of annoying. And then at some point, I realized, okay, well, I, I'm about to graduate, and and, and then what? I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna create another project and then I'm gonna end that and then I'm gonna create another project. So might as well choose the thing that I really like doing because there's no point. This is gonna go on until I die. So if there's no purpose beyond enjoying what you're doing, let's enjoy what we're doing. And, and, and so yeah, I agree 100% with what you're saying. I heard today, or I read today, there's a guy named James Clear. I get his blog each week, and he wrote something about, he probably quoted somebody who said that a good project will take five years. And so this guy who is 60 years old kind of looked at his life and said, I have this many projects left. If I look at five years, I look at my average life expectancy is maybe till 85 then I've got five good projects left in my life. But I was like, whoa, I hadn't thought about that. But I also am a little bit uh, overambitious. I don't think that a good project's gonna take five years. I'm like, please, we can do that in You don't have the attention span for that. It's like, move on, next. Yes. <laughs> Look, are you holding the camera? Camera? You're thinking about your next project. Look, Wait, I think again? start cooking some Ecuadorian food at El Futuro. Ah, 
Yeah, Cecilia makes these like cheese doughy balls that are really yummy. I don't know what yuca they're called. Breads. Yuca breads. Yuca bread. Oh, nice. Wow, those are good. And Cecilia. From the health side, before coming to the US, I worked a lot in the perimetral, just outside uh, in Ecuador, in these very, very poor areas. And a lot of what they were trying to do in the health clinic was just not giving antibiotics and, you know, first aid kind of thing. But the bigger project was, you know, we need to teach people how to eat better, healthier eating. Or, you know, especially when you see the main things that people are facing, diabetes, heart disease, you know, there are things that are, are modifiable by diet. And, you know, you already have this environment in El Futuro where, you know, having the cooking classes with Dr. Smith and you get to wear the chef's hat. Like, I'm seeing the full thing already. <laughs> and, of like course, it. you get other people to be in charge. You get the wife to be in charge of the cooking. How about that? There we go. I just... You know what's so tragic is this COVID moment. Will it ever be over? Can we cook together? I sure hope so. That's my immediate thought, unfortunately. I found myself limiting my imagination by, oh, <laughs> recent history. But yeah, I like that. I like the idea of a cultural exchange. It also starts to take people out of the hierarchies once again. You can come together and um, learn from each other and it, it, it levels the playing field very quickly, doesn't it? It is so good. Like one of the things about poverty is that it really takes away the ability to give. And that is just such a painful thing, this idea if I don't have anything to give you. Yeah. And you know, your patients can cook. <laughs> They've brought food more than once. Yeah. And it is just, I'm, in clinic, I remember when we finished the group, we just had this potluck, and it was just the most amazing food for all these patients that I've been treating for over a year who felt so broken inside and so traumatized and, you know, just at their core, like, they really believed sometimes that they were not good people. Yeah. Uh, but then when they were cooking and were just sharing the food, you, like, I... I've never seen them be more proud of themselves and it's just it just felt so healthy and and the food was delicious so it's a win-win well in in our in our rio chuelo um we have a dwi treatment program driving while intoxicated treatment program and and the people who come to it need to give hours of service community service and a nonprofit uh qualifies so they can come and work in the garden and in the Rio and do all these little projects. Uh, they've painted on the mural. They, you know, and these are people who work painting and doing landscaping and doing electrical work. And so it's been amazing. And wow. I'll find, I get to go up there and work with these guys and um, we're, you know, working together. And uh, Marty Jones, the lady who, told me that I was working too much. Um, she, she also told me, you know, even if they're coming up doing community service, we still don't need to feed them. You know, that's, you know, this is important. We can't just have them come up and work and then not feed them. So we always have a meal together. And that's a beautiful moment because, you know, I'm sweating. I'm not looking like a doctor or doc or whatever I get called behind my back. 
um, I listen to them talk about things during the workday where they're talking about how to, you know, this immigration lawyer, this DWI lawyer, or this over here, you know, it's like you get to hear other things. It's not just a, a, a court, like a isolated um, appointment where you get to say certain things. Like all of a sudden you're having to make conversation in a way that's different and you're connecting with people. And, and then when the food comes, it's more connection. So I really am, I'm learning in those experiences. I'm learning some new words too. And learning, I'm also learning that it is very, and I'm, you always run the risk of stereotypes. So be careful on what you say, right? But it's very common that people can't, that people need to have their music on while they're working. Their banda music or their rancheros or their corridos. And man, so we've had to, we've had to buy some new speakers for the uh, garden because, you know, it's just not fair. It's just like, we got to eat together and we need to listen to our music together. So I'm, I'm learning a lot of songs. It's pretty awesome. So look, <laughs> I can see that what will happen in the next 15 years in your clinic is that, as Jose said, you were going to have the, the kitchen. Then you're, you, you already have the river, the soccer field, and the mural, and the actual clinic. So you're going to end up having a commune. You're going to start building houses, inviting people to live with you. And you're basically gonna end up with a Latin cult revering you as their doc god. <laughs> their doc. I mean, you need a discotheque. <laughs> oh, well, hey, I'm still, the invitation is always on the table for either of you guys to come back and work. We're, we're just waiting on you to, to move back. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful place. It is a beautiful place. I will say that the Rio Chuelo, when the liability insurance bid came up and I went, oh no, <laughs> this, may, this may sink our ship right here. But they said, um, as long as you design it with no more than three inches of water standing at any time, kids can't swim in it. And how foolish they are. These kids, like they go full belly into this Rio and it's been an entertaining experience to watch the kids in this in this river and then like they want to put fish in it it's just fun there's so much creativity out there and they will dam a river with anything they can find um but you know we're learning it's, it's quite an experience so i hope you guys can come visit the river for sure yeah well should we stop here it's good with an invitation invitation to come visit the river or make a donation whichever you'd like so i'm gonna put your website um on on the page so that people know where to make a donation to el futuro highly recommended thank you by the way it's not either or if you go see the river he's gonna order you in the room and have you write the check afterwards <laughs> that's right so it's somewhere do you want to do give the donation and see the river or just see the pictures online. <laughs> well, thanks for having us on, Christian. Yeah, thank you, Luke, and thank you, Jose. And I'm glad to see you and talk with you guys. I, you, you guys should come over. We should do another one with Cecilia. I texted her too late. Maybe we'll do one that is less impromptu with her. Yes, we be great. Okay, thank you all. All right, thank you.
That's Rain Senior. Happy Thanksgiving. Deleted. So.